Welcome to the Top Order Podcast. It's Richie Benno Day here in Auckland, the 22nd of February 2022. And it's a great week for New Zealand cricket. We're going to talk white ferns, black caps, Bolt missing from the second test. The Indian squad has been announced for a tour of Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka Aussie T20s and also a domestic roundup looking at the Ford Trophy and Halliburton Johnson finals coming up this weekend here in New Zealand. All on This Week in Cricket on the Top Order podcast. Stay tuned. Well, Lippy and Raj, we've got to start really, Baldy and I, eating a little bit of humble pie. The reality is, of course, that we make these outlandish predictions for entertainment's sake more than anything else, but our predictions widely inaccurate. First test played down at Hagley, a resounding win for the Black Caps, and all the guys that we talked about being under pressure performed on the big stage. Yeah, we can't let you get away with things that easily. You... uh... I think you actually, gen- oh, I probably should give you some credit because I think you picked every single result possible from from memory, um, and then you just turned on us and started uh, attacking New Zealand instead. But no, look, it's uh, obviously a fantastic, fantastic result for New Zealand. I don't think any of us, as you know, even as confident as Raj was predicting two 0 I don't think uh, you know he can jump in and back himself up here. But I don't think he predicted a, a win in such a, a dominant fashion. I knew all along that was going to happen. To be honest, um, you had you had uh, a team coming in from overseas who have spent some time in quarantine, uh, lulling themselves into a false sense of security in the media, and then just getting it stuck straight up them by our bowlers on day one. So, um, yeah, a great result for me. I think the real story for me is the bowlers. I know we did talk a lot about it, about the batting coming into this test series, but the bowlers really bowled well. I'll, I'll throw it back to you, Lippy, but I, I really want to sort of highlight. Southie and Henry, for me, are the, the, the mainstays. I think that Southie really bowled incredibly well on that first day without much luck. Uh, and then Henry just just absolutely um, took a bag of wickets, didn't he? He was unplayable at times on that first day. What do you reckon? Oh, yeah. I mean, let, let's come back to Southie because I do have some notes on him as well because I, I completely agree. And, um, you know, he's he's passed a few milestones. It hasn't been a great week in the record books for, for Sir Richard Hadley uh, this week, even down in his hometown of, of Christchurch. But Matt Henry, I mean, you know, you think about his game and the he broke so many records and you can sum it up basically with the fact that batting, he batted for 68 balls, scored 58, didn't lose his own wicket. He bowled 156 balls. South Africa only scored 55 runs off him and he took nine wickets. I mean, you know, the, the difference between those two numbers show what a dominant performance he had. He's the first player to score 50 at number 11 and take seven wickets in an innings, which I kind of think is a bit of a niche sort of stat. <laughs> There's not that many people that have scored 50 for at number 11 in test cricket in general. Um, but, you know, third best innings figures for New Zealand, equal with Sir Richard at seven for 23. Second highest score for a New Zealand number 11 behind Richard Collinge. Third biggest innings victory for New Zealand and the other two are against Zimbabwe. I think the thing is about Matt Henry that people kind of forget that he was actually man of the match in the previous test that he played before this. There was a lot, you know, there's a lot of talk about, oh, you know, Matt Henry's always sort of someone who comes in off the the sidelines and hasn't really, really performed at test level. But yeah, the last test he played at Birmingham against England in that test that uh, we won over there where same kind of thing happened. Everyone, a whole bunch of players were rested or injured a little bit for the World Test Championship final. 
he comes in, wins man of the match. So, yeah, it's just wonderful to see him get such a, a great result for, for all the years, I guess, that he's been backing up that brilliant trio and now um, quartet of, of quick, fast bowlers for New Zealand. Yeah, what, what I liked about his performance as well is the, the plan that New Zealand had, that he opened the bowling. So quite often you'll find when, you know, a seamer comes in and he's your, you know, your, your, the 12th man or 13th man in, in your squad, You'll, you'll see them come in and, and maybe bowl sort of, you know, first or second change and, and they just bump up one of the other guys. So whether, whether that had have been um, probably most likely Jameson, I guess, but re- really nice to see him get the um, the new rock in, in Australian parlance, um, a ball in, in most other parts of the world um, and, you know, perform so well with it. You, you alluded to it a little bit with the South African preparation. So New Zealand winning the toss and and sticking in South Africa who, look, let's make no bones about it. You're going to be underdone when you're not playing any warm-up cricket. Um, I, I'm, I don't think this is going to take the gloss off a test victory for anyone winning the first test of a home series. But have we got to start to ask some questions about the way that we're expecting teams to front up out of these COVID bubbles and perform having either been in, in you know that sort of quarantine or bubble with very little match preparation does it you know particularly with shorter test series does it just diminish a little bit I guess um, in, in terms of the World Test Championship and um, and look I don't want to say the integrity of the game but you, you know what I mean in terms of um, probably just giving people that fair chance to get into a series well there's no doubt about it South Africa didn't have an ideal preparation coming into this test series, but they have just come off three tests against India in the recent past. That wasn't that long ago that they were playing test cricket against India, jumped on a plane, and yes, they would have had to spend 10 days in hard quarantine in New Zealand, and they wouldn't have been able to get on the training park at Lincoln or anything even close to that to be able to simulate any kind of match conditions to get themselves ready for this test. So absolutely, South Africa were underdone. Hopefully... If we look forward to the future, in the next six to eight months, we might see the tail end of international border restrictions and those kind of hard quarantines forcing sides into that kind of um, test match schedule. And maybe in six to eight months' time, we're looking at the end of this next uh, southern summer being a case of actually getting in warm-up games because we don't have to do international quarantine. So I think it's a short-term thing. Absolutely, South Africa were underdone for this series, but I don't think they'd use that as an excuse. They underperformed because they didn't bat very well in conditions that suited New Zealand's bowlers. And ultimately, New Zealand, like they did against England a few years ago, just bowled such great channels and such great areas that anything that they did get in terms of assistance out of the wicket did just enough to to beat the bat and take the edge rather than beat the bat and miss it entirely, which can happen on the first day of the Test match as well. But look, Matt Henry was excellent. He was an outstanding performance and a deserving man of the match winner. Well, we've talked a lot about Matt Henry's performance. Other notable performances in the game, Henry Nichols, Neil Wagner, um, Tom Blundell, um, even Colin de Grandhom, who... Um, I think four of us around the table wouldn't have picked in that um, in that side. Would have gone for the spin of of, of Ravindra. Um, performed reasonably well with the bat as well. Uh, anything else that we want to sort of really highlight in terms of those New Zealand performances, or or talk about in in more detail? Yeah, for me, I want to talk a little bit about um, the absolute brilliance of Gary Stead uh, choosing Neil Wagner to bat at five uh, in that engine room with um, with Ross Taylor and Kane Williamson missing. Yeah, it was it was it was good to see. I guess if we just want to sort of single out a few people, Henry Nichols, uh, he was under a little bit of pressure, has been under a little bit of pressure over the last you know eighteen twenty four months, and has responded each time with hundreds. 
there is that spectre hanging over him that he did get dropped twice early in that innings. Um, uh, you know, they were fairly regular. Yeah, have you got have Have you ever seen anyone get dropped as much? I've as never Nichols? seen it. Unbelievable. Baldy oh. this year in our club <laughs> cricket for sure. <laughs> he, he he is riding his luck there. He's got a purple patch, but he's making them pay, and that's all you can ask for. Um, so yeah, exactly. Uh, well, well done to him. Uh, the other one I wanted to talk about was um, Blundell because he he looked really good with the bat. Um, I did say off air when we were talking about South Africa and their bowling. I thought they were going to bowl too short, and that was going to be their downfall. But especially to Blundell, they just bowled too full to him. I know he has you know that weakness outside off stump, but no one has a weakness at a half volley length, and he was just getting half volley after half volley, and he was just absolutely um, smashing it through the offside. Uh, so it was good to see. What about you, um, Baldy? Can can I just pick up on that on that point around Blundell? I thought his innings was tremendous because it wasn't pressure runs in terms of the match situation. But you know, with Cam Fletcher being picked in that one day uh, in that Test squad, there was starting to become this kind of perception of pressure on Blundell for his spot because he hasn't been tremendous over the last twelve months since taking up the gloves. Um, as opposed to being that opening batsman filling in in Australia. So I thought that was a tremendous innings from him under the, under pressure for his own spot, and that was fantastic. And I just wanted to pick up on your point, Raj. Uh, you'll like this statistic. Neil Wagner, g- genuinely normally a number 10, and Matt Henry, number 11, have outscored South Africa between the two of them in both innings of their batting exercise. So, um, you know, they picked up what was 100 107, 108, uh, in there between the two of them, and South Africa bowled out for 95 and 111. So 10 and 11 for New Zealand, almost better than South Africa in both digs. Yeah, and ca- I mean carrying on from that on Blundell, it's so good to see him play uh, aggressively. I think that when he's at his best when he does that, you know, and I think you compare him to BJ Watling. BJ Watling was such a nuggety batsman who just got down and he was at his best when things were, were under pressure. And yes, Baldy, you touched on, I sort of agree with you that, you know, he wasn't under, it wasn't a pressure situation, but what he did is uh, he advanced that game and, and made it, it, he was able to add, I think when he came in, it was 239 for five, but he played a massive part in doubling the score of for New Zealand there with those final five batsmen. And it just made a huge difference for the game. It completely took South Africa out of that game we talked earlier in the our previous episode and of the preview how we kind of thought, oh, well, against Bangladesh, it was a little bit of once they kind of got down to Blundell, the tail would fall away. But this this time, Blundell was able to go on the attack and De Gronholm did the exact same thing. But it even started with Wagner, as you guys said, that just the acceleration that they New Zealand was able to apply at various points in that in that innings, they it just took the game away from South Africa in moments where... If South Africa was able to build some pressure, they could have, you know, it, I'm sure it, it wouldn't have made a huge amount of difference in terms of the final result. New Zealand probably would have still found their way to get to 250, 300, whatever. But it made the game completely gone, and then South Africa just had nothing really to bat for in that final innings and was over very quickly. I also like the look of uh, Colin de Grandhome with the bat. Well, we have mentioned a couple of times that he was averaging 50 in a you know sort of two-year rolling period. Uh, there when he was was uh, a main fixture in the team and he looked every bit that as he was batting and then got out in um, you know poor fashion towards the end there holding out but he he looked really good with the bat and you know in those conditions maybe he is a better all-rounder with the seam being a seam bowler than someone like Rachin Ravindra in New Zealand so look he's put himself firmly back in the mix I think with that innings. 
Tim, many bright spots for South Africa going into this second test match. New Zealand are going to be most likely unchanged with Trent Bolt being ruled out of this second test. Apparently not quite enough load in his um, in his legs to be considered for selection. But anything for, for South Africa to cling to in, in terms of momentum, Raj, into this second test match? I just I, I don't think that you can be as bad as that again. You know, that's something that they kind of have to cling to there. I think they were very poor with the bat. They didn't apply themselves. They they played at balls, which they didn't need to. If you watch the difference, and especially the openers, the way that they played 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 those early, early few overs uh, was like chalk and cheese, not playing anything that they didn't need to. Yeah, that's the key for South Africa to improve on their performance in the second test is to absolutely make sure that their judgment is a lot better wide of off stump. If you had a look at the, the heat map of... The South African dismissals in the first innings, only Matt Henry's LBW was anywhere close to hitting the stumps. And yes, to be fair, it was hitting leg stump. But the rest of them were at least a foot either outside off, outside leg, or over the top of the stump. So South Africa's judgment needs to improve vastly in the second test if they're going to be competitive. And I think it's a case of, you know, same team, better batting. I don't think their bowling was actually that bad. I thought Olivia looked good in patches. I thought Marco Janssen looked good in patches. But they were able to give New Zealand dominance because they were on the back foot already. They only had 90 to play with in the first inning. So any kind of momentum New Zealand were able to build, South Africa couldn't rest back the advantage. And they just need to take their catches. I think that they had they actually created a lot of chances, but they just let themselves down in the field. I think that they'll be much better going into the second, um, sec- second test. Now that they've had their warm-up, I think they'll be uh, ready to go. Yeah, and I mean, there's a chance that uh, Lungi Ngidi comes back into their, into their attack. He was ruled out. We sort of expected him to be in that side, and um, he was uh, troubled by back spasms, so didn't play in that game. And, and you guys just touched on it there that 13 of their wickets were caught, caught, you know, keeper and cordon. And, and you know, you're not going to win that many games, I don't think, when that sort of thing's happening, because it, it does mean that yeah, you're pushing your hands out and you're you're playing probably at balls that you're not really going supposed to be playing at. I mean. You know, Raj, maybe the balls balls were just coming down too slow for for Dean Elgar. He certainly had his hands out uh, out far far further forward than he than he should have. And um, yeah, look, I mean, he, he's going to be a key wicket again though because some of those other players are, are out of form. I mean, you, you guys talked about maybe it's the same team that uh, that plays. I, I think it, from the sounds of what Elgar is saying, I think Markram's in line to be dropped. I I found a quote from from Elgar today, and he said. I think they asked about Markram's, you know, last 10 innings and he's out of form and stuff. And, yeah, he averages 9.7 in his last 10 games. He's such a supremely talented player, but it's just not working out for him at test level yet. And, and Elgar said, it's not foreign that he's been struggling. I'm sure that the conversation will be come up with the selectors. So <laughs> I think if I... There's if a I, vote of confidence. I that, I'd, yeah, I think if I heard that, it'd be, uh, I'd be... You know, thinking about things I might do over the next week while I'm sitting watching on the sideline because it doesn't feel like uh, he, he's going to play. And if that happens, then then maybe it's uh, it's Ryan Rickleton who comes in, who's someone who's um, you know sounds sounds like he's been in great form in um, South African first class cricket, um, and actually played for Wellington A. You know, not that long ago, um, you know, four or five five or six years ago, and um, I think there was a at some point some talk that he might stay here and. Um, you know, try and turn himself into a Conway or a, a Wagner and 
represent New Zealand, but obviously that never happened. Well, just a pity he's not English because an average of 9.8 would, would seem pretty close to the, the top of the run charts. <laughs> Should we move on to look the amazing Melia Kerr? She has, I guess, turned in yet another match-winning performance and unbeaten uh, 33-ball um, 60-odd. A um, couple of catches and uh, and then also wickets in, in India's chase as well. So, um, yeah, the White Ferns marching on as well, Lippy. Oh, yeah, what a what a week. It, well, what a, it's, I guess it's been over a week now, but what a run of a series that they're having. I mean, you know, I, I think you... I think we forgot maybe that this White Fern side was, was reasonably good because they, they've been playing against Australia and England for almost the last... I think they've won two ODIs from their last 20. Um, but most of those had been against Australia and England. And I think, you know, we've talked at, at length at times about how good that Australian women's side is. And England is, you know, they're not quite there perhaps, but they're they're right up there in, in terms of quality. And, you know, having to, to play those two sides has been, has, I think, made the White Ferns look a bit more, a bit weaker than they actually are. And But in saying that, They've performed. They've out, certainly outperformed my expectations, and just their batting in, in particular has been unreal. They've three, and, and it, it's been getting better every time. They keep chasing. They've been chasing two seventy plus. They've they put two seventy plus on in the first innings. This fourth ODI got reduced to a, a T twenty match. They put up one hundred and eighty eighty odd. You know, it's just been tremendous, and and it's been contributions from all all up and down the lineup. So. Yeah, very, very impressive. I mean, um, you know, we won't go into it in too much detail. We're actually going to preview the the, um, the Women's World Cup a little bit later on in the week with a, a special guest. So, you know, but yeah, look forward to that because yeah, it's going to be exciting kind of talking about how well this, this White Fern side is going. Just on the Indian side, Stu, they've obviously fallen to a, a reasonably hot New Zealand side at the moment. Where do you think that puts them in their preparation for the World Cup? Because they've had some good individual performances. I mean, today we saw the fastest ODI 50 for India um, uh, for Rika Ghosh. So 52 off 29 balls, fastest ODI 54 India. Took a stunning catch from Amelia Kerr to get her out. You know, there have been some good individual performances. They put up 260, 270 against the White Ferns, but weren't able to get home. Have they fallen down the pecking order at the moment, or have they just run into a good side on their home soil? Do you think? Look, I, I think it's hard. It's hard to know, and I mean, it, because you don't really know the mindset of what India is using the series for in terms of their build-up. They've they've had pe- players that have uh, they they didn't all come uh, through the quarantine together. A couple of their players took a little bit of extra time to get into the series. As you've mentioned, they've they've been in some excellent positions in the series. They've you know I think in that third ODI they were hundred for none after thirteen overs, and um, you know even on the New Zealand's batting lineup they had they had New Zealand two fourteen for two. Susie Bates was out. Sophie Devine was gone. They've been in great positions to win the game. It's just that they haven't then gone on and done it, and New Zealand's been able to wrestle back that advantage and kind of continue on and uh, and put themselves in the box seat. So. Yeah, look, I, I don't know. I think they'll be, you know, I think they'll be disappointed. You wouldn't, you don't, you don't expect to, to lose 4-0 or, you know, we've obviously got one more game to come, but they, they won't be happy. You want to go into a tournament trying to, you know, get your confidence up and you don't do that by potentially getting whitewashed in a series. So, I don't know. New Zealand's in particular is going to be 
hard to beat if they play as well as they they have in this tournament in this series so far. I think you're absolutely right. I think the biggest takeaway from me has been New Zealand's ability to get themselves out of trouble and win games that they were not maybe not favourites to win, but games that they maybe weren't expected to win from the positions that India were in. So I think that's a massive takeaway for New Zealand. And look, India, uh, England and Australia in particular look out because New Zealand are definitely on the rise. For India, I think this has been a massively disappointing series for their, for their women's side. They'll be very disappointed with not getting across the line in games that they would expect to win from those positions. So, you know, against a potential semi-final opponent, I feel like New Zealand has really got the upper hand against this Indian side. And it'll be really interesting to see what they can do in the World Cup should they come and meet each other again. Because I think New Zealand just won't fear India now. They've chased down big scores. They've bowled them out for low scores. You know, they've done it all really. And India, I think, would potentially go into that game maybe perhaps having a mental block against New Zealand. So big tick for the White Ferns for me. Lippy, let's move on to domestic scene here in New Zealand. We've got the Ford Trophy and Halliburton-Johnson finals coming up this weekend. Uh, weather permitting, what should we be looking out for? Yeah, well, let's stick with the women to start with in the Halliburton-Johnson Shield. It's a it's a repeat of the Super Smash final with the, the Blaze and Sparks, but it's it's been a weird competition for them because, uh, f- for one, it's just been so uh, hampered by rain. It's um, I think, you know, you look at the... All you have to do is look at the actual records of the two sides going into the finals. The Blaze are, are 5-0 and in a 10-match competition, so they've had half their games rained out. Neither of these two sides have played a game since the 6th of February when the Blaze played the Sparks and you know won a rain-reduced game at that point that, that was reduced down to 33 overs. Both sides are going to be going in with a lot of their White Ferns players ruled out. On either side, you've got players who might have thought they had a case to be in the White Ferns squad with Lee Kasparik on the Blaze side and, and Kate Ibrahim on the, the Sparks side. So... Yeah, it's, it's really hard to predict what's going to happen, but I think it shows that, you know, the dominance of, of those two sides this season. Um, you know, last season we had the Magicians who were performing very strongly, but yeah, these these two sides, I mean, the Blaze are looking to, to go through it. If they win, they're going to go through the whole season unbeaten. So that would be a tremendous effort if they go on and do that. And it's exciting, I suppose, in, in many ways that they're going in now with the, a lot of their White Ferns players unavailable we're going to see what some of the the younger players who were kind of in that squad actually didn't really get to I suppose take the starring roles uh, in the Super Smash they've got the opportunity to do so uh, in this Ford in this uh, Halliburton Johnson final Um, and then I guess moving on to the Ford Trophy it's just been a run fest over the last few weeks we've uh, we've had yeah, just really rapid hundreds from we had Ross Taylor who broke the the record for the um, fastest ODI uh, or Ford Trophy hundred in in New Zealand, forty nine balls. Glenn Phillips smashed one hundred and twenty odd off hundred balls the other day. We had today uh, Guptill and, and George Worker both scored hundreds for Auckland. I think Auckland's posted well over three fifty in in their last two games and kind of stormed into the the final against CD and, and as I just mentioned Ross Taylor's been in, in great touch for them so you know you would expect it's going to be a, another sort of run fest in that game and, and a lot of uh, you know quality New Zealand players uh, are going to be in that match uh, by the looks of things and I suppose just to, to finish uh, on the Ford Trophy stuff it, it was uh, Auckland versus uh, Otago today and Actually saw the last games uh, domestic cricket for a couple of uh, you know stalwarts of 
certainly the, the first-class game in New Zealand, and, and Neil Broom obviously played for... Well, and, and, and Anaru Kitchen also played, um, I believe, played a couple of T20s maybe for, for New Zealand at some point. So, yeah, both those two players, yeah, really put in a lot of, a lot of years uh, in first-class cricket, and, and Anaru Kitchen signed off with 100 today in the, the Ford Trophy. So, yeah, congratulations to, to both of them on their careers. We'll switch gears from domestic to international cricket. We've seen recently the England team being decimated as a result of the Ashes debacle, um, a losing side um, being ripped apart. But we're also seeing a, a winning side dismantled as well. The recent India squad to play at home versus Sri Lanka is going to have an unfamiliar feel with Ridhiman Saha, um, Ajinka Rahani, uh, Pajara and Ishant Sharma all missing from that squad. What do we, what do we make of this, boys? So I think for a few of those guys, the writing's been on the wall for for a while now. If you look at Rahane and Pajara, they've been struggling to score runs. Saha's behind Rishabh Pant now. Uh, he'll only really get a game in in in, in the absence of um, Rishabh Pant. And Ishant Sharma has been playing ducks and drakes a little bit, not wanting to play um, the domestic four days as well uh, in the Ranji Trophy. So he did end up going back and playing in the last few games there, but. Uh, yeah, at the end of the day, I think we're seeing a, you know the, a signal of change here from the Indians. Uh, they've still got a very very strong batting lineup uh, with Shubman Gill coming back into the fold, uh, and they've got guys like KL Rahul who aren't even in the squad for the um, the in the Test series against Sri Lanka coming up due to injury. Uh, but uh, they've said if he if he can pass his fitness test, he will be back into that squad as as soon as possible. They're they're looking very strong going forward. So I think this is very much just a changing of the guard. But uh, yeah, still probably one of the best, if not the best, test sides going around at the moment. Yeah, it's amazing that depth, isn't it? That they can have those kind of stalwarts and and tremendous performers in Pajara and Rahane. Of course, Rahane instrumental in that series victory over Australia a little over twenty four months ago. Now, uh, maybe even less than that. Gosh. And all of a sudden, he's on the outside of that side looking in. I think there's a road back for Rahane in particular if he continues to score Ranji Trophy runs. I think it will be much harder for Ishant Sharma to get in front of that um, that pace battery that India have got now. They've got a lot of depth here, there for him to get in front of. And I actually, actually think it will be really hard for Ridiman Saha to get back into that international side as well now that KS Bharat looks to be in favour as an option in front of, of him for that backup uh, wicket-keeping position. So... I can see a way back for Ajinkya Rahane, particularly if he's got good leadership skills, which he does, but I think it's going to be harder for those other guys. Uh, but the, obviously the writing's not on the wall for them in terms of their entire international career just yet. But I think yeah, one of them's got a bit of a leg up and the others don't at this point. Yeah, what, what do you guys make of the Saha thing? Because uh, there's been a bit of conversation around, you know, essentially it sounds like Rahul Dravid had a conversation with him and, and you know, Saha's saying he was basically told to, to retire. Dravid's obviously trying to um, put his, you know, as you said, changing of the guards. He's he's bringing through the players that he thinks will be the next group of, of successful players for India, along with a lot of the players who have already been very successful. Well, yeah, do you, I mean, how do you feel about that? Because when I look at Saha and and conversations, I suppose selection conversations, you do you do want your coach to be honest with you, don't you? Yeah, I think firstly, looking at this from a 360-degree perspective, um, I think those conversations should stay in-house. I don't know what he's doing talking about them, firstly. But secondly, there's just a lot of different sort of interpretations of this. So one of the one of the main 
things that have come out from the Indian camp, especially the selectors, is that there's actually not that many tests between now and the end of the year. There's very much a switch of focus for the 2020 World Cup uh, coming up. And uh, you're talking about these guys making their way back into the side early next calendar year, which is which is a long time. A lot of these guys are in their mid-30s at the moment, so... Yeah, when it comes to the actual conversations that you're talking about, Stu, it's hard for me to decipher anything. For someone who actually watches, you know, the media around the Indian team especially, I can't actually pick up who's telling the truth and who's not here. There's a lot of he said, she said when it comes to this particular Saha um, issue. So India's opposition with that new look side will be Sri Lanka. Um, at home coming up in that test match series. Sri Lanka currently in Australia where they've managed to snag the fifth T20 international. Uh, still losing the series 4-1, but uh, yeah, I guess a bright spot for them uh, with a victory, I think, at the MCG in that final game of the, the series. Probably more questions for Australia coming out of that series. Baldy in terms of makeup of their side, who's going to open the batting? Will Finch go to the World Cup? There's there's a whole heap of stuff going on with your uh, your countrymen in Canary Yellow. Oh, it's lining up beautifully, boys, this World Cup title defence. I mean, we're the same position we were in last year. Questions about the side, who's going to be in, what's happening with the Australian team. We can't get our side right. It's all going to go pear-shaped at the big moment. Look, it, it's building up in exactly the same way it did 12 months ago, and I, and I couldn't be happier. Look, there's lots of questions uh, going into this, well, coming out of this series, I should say, than, than going in. And, and it starts with the captain, Aaron Finch. Where is his best position in the order? Should he be even even be in the team? You know, are we going to have a uh, an Owen Morgan situation where you've got him kind of batting lower down in the order but leading the side with aplomb? Are they going to go with an, a young up-and-comer like, you know, Josh Inglis? Are we going to see Marcus Stoinis go to the top of the order? There's so many permutations around the Aaron Finch position that it's really hard to see right now what they're going to do. I think the answer that we have got is that Ashton Agar is not an opening bat. Um, he was excellent with the ball, but... He's not an opening batter. If Australia want Ashton Agar in that side, he's going to have to fit, fit in with those other four bowlers because we've got another three bowling options in our best 11 in Marsh, Maxwell and Marcus Stoinis. So I think you've got to go, OK, we're going to have three bowlers and these extra... Uh, sorry, four bowlers and these extra options. If they want Zampa and they want Agar, then they're going to have to pick two of Cummins, Stark and Hazelwood, which seems like an, a really diff difficult decision to leave one of those guys out. I think y if you have to have all three, then Cummins is going to have to bat at seven. That's half a spot too high. Um, Ashton Agar is going to bat at seven or eight. That's half a spot too high for him. So there's all these different permutations of the Australian side that they've got to try and get right. And I think you've got to actually just have a look at it and go, who's your captain and who do you want that person to be? And then everything will fall into place around that. The other answer that I think we've got for that Australian side is that there might not actually be a place for Stephen Smith in our best 11 for the Australian cricket team moving forward in T20s. If you have a look at the best 11, you've probably got someone like Marsh, Maxwell and Stoinis in that engine room. You've got Matthew Wade in there who's a good finisher and I think he will keep a spot at number six regardless of whether or not he wears the gloves. So Inglis might come in as a keeper bat at the top of the order. You'd still keep Wade as a finisher. So some of those questions are starting to shape up in terms of the answers that we've got. I think the Australian selectors like Wade at seven so they're going to have to figure out that bowling attack around uh, around Cummins, etc. I see you've left um, David Warner out there. Do, do you think that he is out of the reckoning or you just um, somehow forgot to mention him in that list? 
Well, he didn't play in the series, I don't think, and, and he's a lock at the top of the order for me based on his performances in the World Cup last year. So he's obviously had some time off now after the Test Series, etc., etc., to relax and refresh and, you know, get ready for get ready for the next series coming up. He's absolutely a lock at the top of the order for me, no question. Uh, so the reason I ask is I'm not falling for this uh, Australia's in a shambles sort of, sort of piece that, that's happening at the moment. I reckon 10... If not eleven out of your eleven are kind of locked in there with the when you look at your bowlers Hazelwood, uh, Cummins, Stark, uh, Zampa, and then you've got that that top order that we talked about. I think that everyone's sort of locked in there. I, I feel like you're playing you're playing games with us here a little bit. I am trying to absolutely. I'm trying to, but I think there is a genuine question over Finch's form um, at the moment, based on his on his recent performances. I think he got 35 in one of those matches, kind of a runner ball there. But they're kind of looking at him as where or not where, whether or not he slots down the order. I think the only way that they would do that is if they had four bowlers. Finch at four, that difficult spot where Smith is at the moment, and then they bring Inglis or Stoinis up to the top of the order to replace Finch at the at the, at the pointy end of the order. And Baldy, if, if Finch does make way, either in the squad or during the course of the tournament, who, who gets the armband? Yeah, great question. Well, you can't give it to Warner, I don't think, based on, on what Cricket Australia have said about his, his leadership potential. He's or not potential, banned but, for life, isn't he? Well, from, I, from think a he's, role? Yeah, I think he's sort of got the, the black mark in the, in, across the name. If it's not Cummins as a three-format captain, I would be tempted to go with someone like Mitchell Marsh. You know, he's been an excellent performer. He's a number. He's a lot to be in the side. Um, he would probably play under all conditions in Australia. So maybe Mitchell Marsh is a candidate. I think all the other guys would be potential to come and go in the side. Someone like Hazelwood might be rotated out for a, for a Kane Richardson or a Jai Richardson, someone like that. So I would be tempted to go with maybe maybe Mitchell Marsh in that scenario. And, and uh, look, we might talk a bit more in depth next week about this Australia-Pakistan tour, but they've, they've named the, the white ball side today and uh, a few sort of key names missing from, from that. Those, um, a lot of, I don't think those seamers are there and, uh, and also Warner missing. A lot of chat is uh, that it's due to the IPL because basically the IPL is set to begin potentially at the end of March and, and that Pakistan tour doesn't finish until uh, I think the start of, of April. What do, what do we make of all of this? Because it's going to be another sort of club versus country kind of thing because New, Zealand, New Zealand's in the same situation. I mean, we've got the Netherlands uh, ODIs uh, against, you know, are, are going to clash. I think they're all around the, the end of March, start of April as well. And then even on the flip side of that, uh, at the end of the IPL, which is scheduled not to end, I think, until the end of May, uh, it's potentially going to clash for New Zealand with the start of their tour test tour to England. And I mean, I cannot see any scenario where those guys miss a World Test Championship test, the likes of Conway and Williamson and, and such key players like that. But you also sort of can't see them leaving uh, the IPL early if their team's in the semis and the finals. So, yeah, I mean, what do we make of it? I suppose from, from an Aussie perspective and from a New Zealand perspective. Yeah, I don't mind that side that they've selected to go to Pakistan to play white ball cricket because I think if we're going to think of a, a bolter coming into that Australian side for the World Cup title defence, I don't mind the option to have um, Travis Head come into that side. I think he could bat anywhere in the order. He's an excellent, excellent 50-over um, player. He's got a 230 for South Africa, uh, for South Australia, I should say, this season. You've got Cameron Green in there. We'd like to see what he can do in the in the limited overs format. You've got Inglis in there as a potential bolter, or not bolter, but a, a guy looking to play for that Australian side. And also Ben McGregor. 
McDermott, who's looking to avenge a, a pretty poor series with the bat at the top of the order against excuse me, against Sri Lanka just gone. So there's plenty of guys on the cusp of that Australian World Cup title defence that are going to get a go, and I really like the squad that they've put together. I'm, it's it's one of those things where the, the scheduling of cricket is just going to become a continued issue as long as we've got lots and lots of franchise-based cricket that butts up against or overlaps series like this one, which is effectively a bilateral warm-up series for a major tournament, right? We're not going to see club versus country for major tournaments like a World Cup, but we're going to continue to see it for these kind of marginalised series where it's bilateral preparation for or build-up to, to major tournament type stuff. And look, it's great for talking points as well, isn't it, when we're leading into these tournaments because you are compromised in terms of the size that you pick. Someone like a, a Josh Inglis who goes on this trip um, and I think there's one T20 on the trip, isn't he? So he's likely to get maybe a go with the gloves, which he didn't in this five test series. If he has a decent series, then there's potentially a question around that, you know, that World Cup spot, isn't there? Uh, and the same probably with, um, yeah, a, a number of others that you will think of that will get those opportunities in those tours, which you've got to say, um, they can't be called sort of alternative tours or minor tours anymore. It, it's a reality that teams are going to have to blend their their teams and their selection um, to meet the scheduling requirements that are, that are happening at the moment and still allow the players that lack of bubble fatigue, if that's the right way to put it, and also the ability to play in the you know in the in the big money tournaments as well. I don't mind uh, you know the the resting of players towards the end. They've had a long summer completely dominating England earlier in the summer and then obviously taking Sri Lanka down here in the last couple of weeks. But I have no problem with that. When it comes to New Zealand, this is actually a situation where um, we haven't been faced with before. We've got such a large number of people uh, in the IPL uh, who, who are part of our test contingent. I think there is something contractually that they have to play for for New Zealand, but I don't think it will come to that. I think if you have leaders over there like Kane Williamson, I can't see him, uh, you know, choosing to play IPL over playing uh, a Test series in England. Um, so yeah, I think the leadership will, will kind of shine through there. So I'm hoping that happens. Like I said, I don't like this whole discussion around choosing between your your country and, and club. I, I don't think it's a decision uh, for me. I don't think it's a decision for any of us on this call. We, would, um, we wouldn't make that, that decision. We would always take that, that test. But, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a situation that we haven't come across before in New Zealand anyway. Well, and it's, it's because of this. And it, I think the quarantine, is, as you guys have sort of touched on earlier, that's having a, a big role in this, isn't it? Because you've got to leave these places. It's not a matter of that you, you can just go anymore. You're sort of having to just... You're having to finish your tournament a little bit early to do your requirements, but actually, perhaps in Britain, uh, they might not need to do that now with with the England dropping all their regulations. So we'll see. And I mean, those those IPL things haven't the dates haven't actually been confirmed. I don't think at this point, but yeah, that the speculation is that uh, it'll be very close to the start of that that Test series. And yeah, like you say, it's something New Zealand's never had to deal with before. Raj, just before we finish up, I know you had a few other things you wanted to say about the, Sh the Sri Lankans and their effort in this series. Yeah, I was very impressed with the Sri Lanka in this series. I mean, unfortunately, they didn't quite have... They were let down a lot with their batting when it came to actually competing with Australia. But they did win that last match and they took that um, uh, super over in the second T20, I believe, as well. So they, they did show glimpses, but really their batting let them down in, 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 a, in a big way. 
they need to change that approach to how they're batting on Australian wickets. If you listen to the commentators, they're actually quite quite apt, but they just need to be better on the back foot. And they need, and guys like Chandamal, Kusal Mendes, who was out for a while, uh, Aslanka really need to step up and start to help um, guys like Nasanka, who was who looked really good at times during that series. Uh, the other thing that really excited me was the Sri Lankans bowlers, their fast bowlers especially. Chimera and Kamara were lightning quick. I think Chimera got up to that 146 sort of K mark or range. So that, that's very exciting going forward. Um, but I think that they're going to have a, a really good World Cup. I think they would have learned a lot from it and they'll, they'll take it through to the World Cup. Yeah, they're going to be an exciting side at that World Cup for sure. You, I mean, we we sort of didn't really touch on it last week that you know we, we were excited about Hasaranga and then didn't talk about the fact that he... Uh, I think on the same day got got COVID and, and was ruled out for that series. But yeah, the the spinners that they've got, um, yeah, I, I I'm a huge fan of of what they they can bring and if they can continue that core and build that young player base over this next sort of nine months as, or whatever it is until that World Cup, it's going to be really fun to watch them. Yeah, I think they're going to be a much much better side in Australia than they were in the UAE. They've got those two spinners, Dikshana and, and Hasaranga de Silva, that's, they're going to be excellent. As you said, Raj, the two quicks in Kumara and uh, Chimara, or Chamira, sorry, are, are, are excellent as well. And they're going to actually benefit those bowlers from having bigger fields to bowl to rather than the small fields in the UAE. They miss a little bit and they're going to get the, they're going to get the tap, particularly the spinners. So I think they're going to be a huge, huge influence in that Australian um, conditions for the T20 World Cup. Just as as, long, as far as their batting goes, I think they hit on the formula on the head in that last match, having Kusal Mendes open the batting with Pasul uh, Nisanka. Those two guys look a good opening combination. And then you've got Asalanka, you've got those other guys coming in. Um, Shananka, the captain, you know, at the bottom of the innings trying to finish along with um, Kurunaratna. So there's a lot to like about that fifth, uh, that fifth T20 lineup. And I know it's the only one they won, but that batting lineup to me looks like a much better balanced batting lineup to go into that T20 World Cup in Australia. Well, team, that probably just wraps up this episode of the Top Order podcast. A real journey around the world of cricket this week. We've covered lots and lots. There's lots and lots more to come as well in terms of cricket hitting your TVs and your airwaves as well. So please do stay tuned to the feed for news, views, and as Lippy mentioned, interviews. Um, coming up in a preview to that um, Women's World Cup. Um, but for now, it's good night and God bless from us all here uh, in Auckland. We'll see you soon. Stay tuned. <laughs>